Okay, well, welcome to um, the second in the series on certification and sustainability. Uh, my name is Julian Savalesco, I'm the Hero Chair of Practical Ethics and I direct one of the Martin uh, Institutes on Ethics and Biosciences. Um, it's a great pleasure today to welcome Clive Barnett, um, who is described as a lapsed urban geographer from the Open University, previously at, at Oxford, whose research is focused on the relationships between public life practices, representation and democracy. Um, his recent research includes a collaborative project on ethical consumption, ongoing work on emergent publics, and preliminary research on the politics of behaviour change. He's author of Culture and Democracy, co-author of Globalising Responsibility, and co-editor of Spaces of Democracy, Extending Hospitality, and Geographies of Globalisation. His talk today is going to be uh, on, as you can see, enacting the ethical consumer. And I just want to say I'm personally extremely excited. Um, a year or so ago, Oxford students occupied one of the buildings of the university and refused to leave after one of the Palestinian, uh, one of the Israeli bombings of the Palestinians. And the proctors were only able to get them to remove themselves on promise that the university would uh, revisit its investment uh, in arms manufacturing companies such as BAE. So I now sit on a, on a committee for the university called the Socially Responsible Investment Committee, who's reviewing the whole of the university's investment strategy and hopes to turn the university into an ethical investor. But today we're hearing about an ethical consumer, so I'm very excited. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Julian. And uh, thank you for the invitation to come and uh, talk to you. Uh, and thank you to everybody for um, turning up. Um, I said when I was uh, initially invited that the project which um, uh, I worked on, which I guess it led to the invitation, wasn't about uh, sustainability specifically, and it wasn't really about certification, but that um, didn't seem to put Steve off. Um, uh, and I guess the, the, the thing I can talk to you about is um, uh, uh, our particular tape, the particular tape that we developed in our project on and how to think about ethical consumption and how to think about uh, the ways in which ordinary people uh, become enrolled and become uh, active as um, so-called ethical consumers. That's what our project was, uh, was about. So I'm going to talk to you about some of the things we, we did on, on this project and some of our findings, if that's the right uh, word. Um, the project was called Governing the Subjects and Spaces of Ethical Consumption. It was uh, part of a, a ESRC and AHRC funded uh, programme on the cultures of consumption, which ran from about 2002 through to 2007. One of these kind of interdisciplinary uh, 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 programmes which the research councils uh, used to uh, fund. I, might, I think they might be abandoning that now. Um, not because of this one. Um, it, was, it was very successful. Um, so we were one project on a, on a, on a larger programme of about 25 or 26, 27 uh, other projects looking at different aspects of consumption. Quite a lot of projects on um, uh, consumerism and consumption uh, discourses in public services, issues of kind of water consumption in various third world uh, countries and, and so on. So quite a diverse range of takes on consumption. I, I mention this um, partly just to, uh, uh, because it's important, it was important for how our own project developed, that we kind of learned quite a lot about how consumption was theorised and how uh, people researched consumption by being on this programme. I think if we uh, had a standalone ESRC grant standard in a standard way, our project would have turned out differently. But we were, we were doing lots of learning by virtue of um, uh, being on this programme. We were having quite a lot of our own prejudices and, uh, uh, and uh, chauvinisms confirmed on the one hand about how people did and shouldn't 
uh, think about consumption, but we're also learning quite a lot about interesting things going on uh, in, in other fields. Uh, so our particular project, uh, which was, was uh, focusing on ethical consumption, lasted from 2003 to 2006. That's when the money uh, was, was coming in. It kind of, uh, as these things tend to do, sort of has a rather long afterlife, and it's, we're still kind of busy writing um, uh, things out of it. So actually, the afterlife has turned out to be longer than the project itself. So what I'm going to do today is to sort of talk, to, talk you through some of the kind of headline uh, issues from one of the books coming out of the project. We have two books coming out of the project. One of them is, I think, the other one is just being completed. This is the one which is about to come out. It's coming out at the beginning of December, so if you're stuck for Christmas gift uh, ideas, um, uh, probably retails about £50, so I'm sure it's, it's, it's worth it. Um, uh, this is the book which kind of um, uh, tries to tell a, a sort of a coherent story about how different organisations involved in ethical consumption campaigning seek to enrol people into their campaigns and in turn how those people who are being addressed by those campaigns negotiate those demands or those uh, uh, hailings, if you like, to become involved. Our project, I should also say, sort of had certain sort of theoretical ambition. It was, one, I think, one of the reasons we got our project funded as part of this programme was because uh, we set up uh, a framework to theorise ethical consumption. Quite a, and we were told afterwards that quite a lot of the projects on the programme didn't have a heavy kind of theoretical uh, take to them, which is probably not a bad thing for them. They're probably much better than ours. Um, but we did have this very explicit uh, 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 setup about theorising ethical consumption in a particular way. Uh, now, whether or not we kind of delivered on, on, on that ambition is, is not necessary for us to say. <laughs> uh, but there was a particular kind of um, set of issues we were interested in. We kind of had this setup which was essentially using uh, a set of ideas from, uh, derived from uh, Michel Foucault around governmentality theory and various associated ideas around uh, practice and some actor network theory, those sorts of ideas, to, to think about this relationship between attempts to enrol people into certain sorts of campaigns and the way in which those people may or may not be, have been made into subjects of ethical consumption practices. Um, oddly, one of the very first, first things we did on the project was, was we actually pu we essentially published the, uh, the research proposal as a paper. We rewrote it because it was a theory proposal. We rewrote it as a theory paper. Um, but not necessarily to be recommended, but you know, it worked. Um, and this, pa this particular paper has been very heavily cited in the last five years, which is a bit weird because it sort of sets out a framework for how to go off and study and theorise ethical consumption, but it's not quite what we, what we ever did. And the subsequent papers, including this book, kind of essentially take apart the framework which we initially set up and which is now being heavily cited. Um, we didn't abandon that sort of governmentality th frame completely, but we kind of um, uh, elaborated it in, 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 in certain sorts of ways. I'm not actually going to talk in great detail about that range of social theory. I'm going to try and say, tell you actually what we did um, uh, empirically and some of the, the things we thought were, were fun uh, about uh, the empirical work we did. Uh, and so the final introductory point is just to say that our, our primary question really was, was a set of concerns about what the proliferation of ethical consumption practices and ethical consumption campaigns could tell us about how politics was being done these days in a place like the UK. We were kind of interested in thinking about ethical consumption uh, as, a, as a certain array of political practices of certain sorts. One of the things you have to do if you get one of these sorts of grants at the end, you kind of have to do an end of project 
uh, uh, report, and uh, specifically on the programme, we were asked to kind of write a little synopsis for sort of a bit of public engagement. And because everybody had to fit the same template, one of the requirements was that we had to say what our, our the, what the findings relevant to policymakers were from our project. Um, we didn't really have any, which is is not to be commended necessarily, but because we had this sort of heavy social theoretical kind of ethnographic style of work, that was not really the aim. But we sort of still had to kind of invent one. Um, so I kind of just came up with the idea that the one single um, uh, recommendation we, we had for policymakers was that they should think that there's no such thing as a consumer. Uh, because what we were trying to do on our project was to try and get, a, get around a series of ways in which ethical consumption practices were constantly understood in terms of the active agency, for good or worse, of this strange figure of the consumer. Uh, so we were kept talking about ordinary people, which is not necessarily terribly defensible as an idea, but we kind of just preferred it as a, as a starting point. Okay, so what I'm going to do is sort of uh, talk you through sort of the three kind of... This book kind of... You don't really need to know that much about the book, but it sort of it reminds me of a bit like a PhD thesis because it has a fairly simple sort of structure. It has kind of three... Uh, has a big theory bit at the beginning, and then it goes through three types of empirical research we did, which is not necessarily the order we did them in, but it kind of constructs a narrative... Uh, 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 as a way of thinking about ethical consumption practice. And I'm going to take you through the three sort of aspects of the research we did. So the first aspect is, was really looking at uh, what it was that ethical consumption campaign organisations and networks um, were seeking to do when they uh, set out to speak to or enrol or enlist uh, the support of, of ordinary people in different ways. So that was our first question. What were they actually doing? How did they think about ordinary people? Did they seek to address ordinary people as consumers or did they have different understandings of, um, of what, what people, what sort of identities people had? Um, so that's, that was the, our, our first question. How were uh, uh, ethical consumption campaigns actually in addressing and enrolling ordinary people? We started the project, I mean, the project was, I guess, conceived before 2003. So this was a moment, I think, um, we set up our project essentially by saying the two things we don't like, didn't like, or didn't kind of believe in, were the idea that people, people's identities were increasingly shaped around the idea of them being consumers. Um, but we were also quite wary of uh, the idea that ethical consumption campaigns worked primarily through providing lots of people with information which they would then sort of adjust their behaviour to, which I, th I guess at that point in the early 2000s seemed to be a very dominant way of, of actually doing ethical consumption campaigning, but also theorising and critiquing ethical consumption campaigning, particularly out of sustainable consumption kind of uh, 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 agendas. A strong emphasis on uh, providing people with information about where their coffee came from or the impacts of leaving lights on and so forth. And if you provide people with lots of information, they will kind of rationally adjust their behaviour. So we kind of set up our project to, to already move away from that and sort of without really knowing it, it turned out that was pretty much what was already going on in the world that we sort of stepped into, that we found ourselves doing research on a, on a set of uh, campaigns and organisations who were already seeming to move away from that sort of uh, uh, quite rational information-led model of, of campaigning. It kind of sort of seemed to have reached some limits for them. So kind of, um, as I say, sort of the, the, the early uh, mid-2000s is a particular kind of moment when there's lots of uh, uh, de public debate going on about the consumer, consumerisation of society in general, particularly about the consumerism, consumerism in public service initiatives. Um, we had quite a, an open sense of what ethical consumption might mean, 
I think you know, most of what I'm going to talk about is actually uh, research done on fair trade networks. So there's that sort of ethical consumption practice, sustainability campaigns, more kind of explicitly political issues like boycotts around those sorts of issues. Um, so the first thing we were doing was trying to scope just what ethical consumption might mean. It might mean all sorts of things, remarkably diverse field. So the two, the two specific things we kind of focused on, or kind of as it were, we kind of generated out of this, this kind of initial scoping, if you like, was that there, was, there, were, there were two things that organisations, different sorts of organisations or campaigns, tended to, to be doing when they kind of sought to enlist people into their campaigns. One of those things was to provide people with particular sorts of narratives, so there were particular sorts of stories which were circulating, which at one level, one very simple level, are stories about responsibility and choice. People have got lots of choices, consumers, and they, therefore they should exercise it responsibly. But um, looking at, I mean, this was partly led by the particular types of campaigns around trade justice and, and things we were looking at. But there, there, there seemed to be a, a more specific emphasis on a particular kind of way of framing discourses of globalisation as relevant to ordinary people. The, the stories essentially went along the lines of, since we now live in a globalised world, a globalised economy, therefore our actions resonate in all sorts of directions to all sorts of faraway places. So the consequences of people's actions, so the story, these stories go, are distributed very widely on the one hand. So quite a, you know, a dark sort of, oh my God, the entire world's uh, problems are really my fault kind of style of of, of uh, uh, narrative. But then a flip side saying, but nevertheless, as consumers, I, precisely the reason why you're sort of implicated in all these processes is also the source of your potential agency to act on all of these, these uh, 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 potential harms that you're, that you're helping to generate. So there's a particular kind of narrative frame that one finds across different fields around that sort of idea. It's not necessarily that surprising. The idea that people as consumers are by virtue of being consumers in all sorts of different fields, are both responsible for but also potentially empowered um, as, uh, as agents in certain new sorts of, of ways. So on the one hand, you, you, we, were telling, we, we, were, we were interpreting this sort of um, field as providing these particular narrative hooks. Um, the second thing that these campaigns do is as well as just telling stories to people and giving them stories themselves that they can debate uh, 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 to themselves and their friends, is try and provide more or less simple ways to enable people to act on those, those kind of ethical demands, if, if you like. Um, the recycling box is kind of the obvious example of this. It's easy to tell people that they have to recycle lots of stuff. Getting people to do it is a bit more difficult. Give them a box and they might start doing it. I, I, I moved from Bristol to Swindon recently. Um, Bristol, you get kind of a, a box for your, not, not just for your beer cans, but for certain sorts of recyclables. So you, um, Bristol also recycles food. Swindon, which is where I now live, doesn't recycle food. We don't get a little brown box for our food, so we no longer recycle our food. Simple kind of point, um, which we were kind of just sort of finding an example across, across a whole series of fields. You can think of direct debits as for, ch for charities uh, as another example. So simple kind of devices, practical devices, which enable people to do the ethical things that they were being asked to do in certain sorts of fields. I'll come back to that point um, later on, on uh, hopefully. Um, so we were, that's, that's our, our, the first part of our research, was kind of asking what is it that people are doing? Uh, what, is, what is it that these organisations are trying to do when they enlist support? Um, and we, we ended up with kind of a, a, an interpretation which seemed to sort of be fitting the things which some of these organisations were telling us, was that actually their ambitions were, were relatively modest. 
They didn't necessarily believe that everybody would dramatically transform, transform all of their consumer behavior um, uh, in relation to any number of different sort of ethical imperatives. Um, but there was a strong emphasis, in fact, on the idea that the, the primary thing that these organizations were trying to do was to get people to talk about different sorts of issues. One of the, the key figures we were interviewing at some point, actually over dinner, unfortunately, so it wasn't an interview, interview said, said to us basically, well, all we're really interested in is discourse. And he thought, excellent, that would, that would do us if, it were, if he'd kind of said it um, formally on tape. But it was, he was kind of articulating the fact that the, a primary concern of the, the organisations involved in, in ethical consumption campaign was to, on the one hand, to, to get issues on the agenda, but as it were, in a more kind of micro-level way, was to provide means of getting ordinary people to talk about things and to actually sort of problematise their own conduct in certain sorts of, sorts of ways. So th another feature of the, the narrative structure of ethical consumption campaigns is, is not just a sort of a hectoring, or at least our argument was the emergent trend, was not just a hectoring, you must do more. It was a, a style of kind of basically laying out dilemmas to people that, you know, I'm, you, you probably want to be a better person, you lead busy, busy lives, isn't this difficult? So a, a way of kind of layering in a certain, sort of, a certain way of dilemmas uh, that, that people might then kind of mull over and, and talk through was something which we, we kind of uh, found as a feature of a set of campaign practices. So that's the sort of first part of what we were looking at, which kind of then sort of led into the second aspect of research, which is in the sense of the, is the flip side of this. If there was a series of different sorts of campaigns using different kind of strategies to enrol and enlist people, trying to, to get them to talk about certain sorts of things, perhaps trying to give them certain sorts of devices to enable them to change their conduct, how did ordinary people actually uh, respond to these demands? How did they ne negotiate uh, these uh, 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 ever-proliferating range of demands to, to, do, to do more things? Um, I should have pointed out, if, if I haven't done already, that, that the uh, considerable amount of the empirical research was done in and around Bristol, because that's where we were at the point that the project started. You probably can't read the, the, the map very well. It's just a, um, uh, it's sort of a professional requirement if you're a geographer to actually show a map. It could be, it could be anywhere. It happens to be uh, a map of wards by deprivation of, of, of Bristol. So one of the things we did, actually the very first thing we did in the project, even though it's not necessarily analytically the first part of the story, is a series of focus groups around different wards in Bristol, um, using the wards as kind of, of, of uh, model, models really for, for different sorts of social areas. Uh, you may or may want, not want to talk in great detail about focus group methodology. What we were attempting to do was get, get, get a range of coverage. The focus group research of this sort doesn't really enable you to get representative coverage necessarily, but it certainly enables you to kind of hit various diverse types of um, uh, different, uh, di uh, diverse and different sorts of, of people. Um, so the, the map is specifically a map of different wards in Bristol by deprivation. Uh, so we were trying to kind of cover different sorts of social areas by doing focus groups in, in, in a, a, a fair array of them. Some of the wards in Bristol, Hartcliffe, which is down at the bottom, for example, some of them are the most deprived, amongst the most deprived wards in, a, in, in the country. Some of the wards in Bristol are, are the uh, least deprived. Um, Bishopston, which is somewhere in the middle in the, uh, you know, towards the top, the green one, um, which has a very large proportion of academics living in it, uh, happens to be the most educated ward in the entire country, by the way, way in which, according to census data. So, and it also the, is the home of a particular kind of focus for ethical retailing. Uh, uh, so, 
we were doing research, we did a bunch of focus groups in these different areas, primarily and firstly to try and generate a sense of what people understood ethical consumption to be and what they knew about it. Um, in a sense, to listen to, to what ordinary people thought ethical consumption was, a, was about. One of the things that focus groups uh, provide you with, with access to is an is a, you know, insight, if you like, into the interactive qualities of, of, of ordinary talk. Um, so the set of issues about how you interpret focus groups, which I'm not going to go into, but which are behind sort of the, 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 the claims we make about what we got out of our focus groups. As I say, the, the reason we were, we were looking at these were to, it was A, to find out what people knew and thought about focus groups, and more strongly, how they responded to this sense of being uh, uh, addressed uh, by this whole series of, of moral and ethical demands to change their conduct and to act more responsibly. Um, th there's certain sorts of styles in social science of interpreting this type of talk data. Um, and, the, and the dominant style, dominant sort of style in qualitative social science uh, uh, about sort of environmental issues, sustainability issues and so on, is, is to read what people say in these kind of contexts, in interviews or fo focus groups, as essentially a, a way of displacing responsibility onto other um, uh, actors. So there's sort of a, a benchmark understanding that people really should be sitting there saying, yes, it really is my responsibility to do all these sorts of things. But they're finding ways of not, of not acknowledging that. And we were kind of sort of determined, just to be sort of awkward, to, to not interpret our, uh, our focus group data in, in that sort of way. Even though it, on first look, it looked like people were like making lots of excuses. Um, so let, let me explain why we, we ended up not interpreting in that, that, that sort of way. The, the first thing that the focus group data kind of then established for us was that actually people knew an awful lot about ethical consumption. They had all sorts of understandings of what we meant by ethical consumption. By, just by inviting somebody to come to a focus group on ethical consumption, they, they will already adopt a kind of a troubled, you know, sort of uh, a persona. So there's a, you've already kind of positioned them in a particular way to begin to sort of talk uh, um, in a more or less uh, justificatory way about what they do and don't don't do. But it turned out people had all sorts of opinions, all sorts of knowledge about ethical consumption campaigns. We discovered things we hadn't thought about, which, which they were talking about. There's, there's an unwritten paper in our project which would be all about McDonald's, the way in which people talked about um, and knew anecdotes about McDonald's, all sorts of different anecdotes about McDonald's, which we didn't anticipate people talking about. Um, one of the odd things about focus groups is that the data is often not very focused. But never mind. So, on the one hand, there was a, one of our findings, if you like, was that people knew all sorts of stuff about ethical consumption. They more generally knew all sorts of narratives about how switching on the lights or, or leaving computers on, so on and so forth, generated all sorts of, 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 of problems. So, th there didn't seem to be a problem across different sort of social categories of people not having enough information. Actually, they often complained about having too much information and not really knowing what to do about it. Secondly, there was a sense that actually when people talk about their consumption practices, not only do they not tend to talk about themselves as consumers, they tended to talk about um, various forms of, various relationships of necessity that they were bound into. So people talk, talk about their habits, their routines, their obligations to family members and friends. So consumption talk turned out not to be about choice and, uh, or, or individual action. It, when people talked about what they did, in this context, they were talking about a whole series of practices that they did, habitual routines, things they had to do, have to buy their kids 
uh, 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 new shoes or, 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 or uh, uh, lunches and so on and so forth. So, a set of kind of um, uh, initial findings. But then we kind of went back, and this took us a long time, <laughs> and sort of thought that, that there was still something go interesting going on in the way in which the, the way in which people talked about ethical consumption, not just what they talked about, but how they talked about, about it. Um, uh, partly as a joke, but I think it found it, well, its way into, into, into the book at some point. Um, we sort of have this line about the, the members of our focus groups being little Habermasians, because what we, we ended up deciding they were doing was reasoning in quite interesting, smart ways about what sorts of ethical imperative, what, what sorts of maxims uh, held for them, which, what sorts of ideas they felt compelled to respond to. Um, and there was all sorts of ways in which people, people did this. Um, J.L. Austin, famous Oxford philosopher, has a, has, a, has a quite famous paper called A Plea for Excuses, which has this distinction between spotting when people's, somebody's making an excuse and giving a justification. The point being that if you make an excuse for something, it's just that you know, actually you've done something wrong, whereas justification might be you know, you're not accepting fault, essentially. And we kind of ended up running that sort of thought through, through the, the talk data we had increasingly convincing ourselves, and if you read the very large chapter five, which is about this, um, you may have been convinced too, that this is what people were, were doing in our focus groups. There was actually not a lot of excuse making going on, but there was different forms of uh, justification going on, different people in which people were marking the sorts of things and the ways in which they, they, should be, they felt they should be held accountable for what they did and didn't do. So in particular, there's sort of three styles, I guess, in which we thought what people in our focus groups were doing was not so much making excuses, but were actually uh, ascribing meaning to the set of ethical demands being addressed to them. We kind of essentially ended up reversing the, the way in which you, you ordinarily interpret this type of data and, and thinking what, what, what meaning did people ascribe to these demands that they uh, buy fair, fair trade uh, coffee, but also shop locally and uh, turn all the lights off and so on and so forth. Um, and there were sort of three styles of, of uh, um, uh, or three descriptions, if you like, under which people uh, provided accounts of what, how, how they understood these demands. The first were a set of stories in which people, if you, and if you like, almost sequentially, this is how, how it tended to work, not always, in which people would basically say, well, um, ethical consumption, all these demands for us to do all these things, they, they require spending lots of money or lots of time. So there's sort of a, a set of kind of practical concerns which very quickly gets articulated, that it's difficult or expensive or costly, and that's partly related to the sort of stories about the habitual nature of, of, of doing a weekly shop and so on. So the first set of descriptions you had uh, emerging were this set of kind of pra quite practical concerns about not being able to do all the things you might want to. There were a second set, which often ran alongside those, which were essentially, well, you can essentially boil, boil down to the, the, the idea that all these demands to be more ethical, ethical in one's everyday consumption practices um, weren't a lot of fun. There was a very strong sense that all of this proliferating public discourse about being more responsible in everyday life tended to be kind of rather sort of prescriptive and didn't have a lot of um, sense of or appreciation of the other goods, the other values which might be important in every, every, people's everyday, everyday lives. And then thirdly, uh, every so often in different ways, in different focus groups, uh, depending on who was in them and the backgrounds of people, you would, you would get uh, various descriptions in which people basically got round to saying, 
this is not my responsibility. Um, which is the most problematic uh, moment in these, in these focus groups for academic analysis, because it's the point in which you're supposed to say, yes, it is. <laughs> um, in one way or another, that's what people end up, end up saying. But we kind of have ended up sort of saying, well, what people are doing, you know, people say, well, it's not my responsibility, it's corporations. You know, it's not just the geography teachers in the focus groups who did this. We did have a geography teacher in one of the focus groups. It's terrible. It kind of ruins the entire discourse because geography teachers know too much about this. But anyway, it wasn't sort of only people who were actively involved in these campaigns who sort of were suddenly able to say, but isn't it corporations whose fault? Or isn't it governments fault? It didn't necessarily have highly articulated political uh, accounts of, 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 uh, of causality. But you very quickly would get to points in which people were saying, this is not my responsibility. Which raises, at the very least, an interesting question about where understand, public understandings of responsibility and what people should be responsible for come from and how they circulate. And, you know, we sort of, as I say, the sense of, of them being little Habermasians revolves in particular around that sort of sense, that people had quite smart ideas about um, uh, not, not just what they could do, but what they should be being asked to do, as, specifically as individual consumers. So we ended up kind of arguing that these people might look like irresponsible consumers, but they they turned out to be quite articulate, sceptical citizens, in, in, in fact. So that was the, the second part of the... Well, the second aspect of the research, a sort of, if you like, a discourse analysis style of work, plus interviews with campaign organisations, focus group research with ordinary people in and around Bristol. And then we actually did an array of case studies on our, our project, not all of which were discussed in this book, um, but uh, some of which were about fair trade issues and some of which were about other issues about organic food networks and other things. Um, and I'm just going to mention two of the, two of the, the case studies uh, because they're, they're examples of, of, if you like, kind of non-consumer focused, non-individualized ways of enrolling people into these types of campaigns. And we sort of we were using kind of a, a thought from social movement theory about uh, the ways in which social movement activism uh, enrolls support, sometimes uses social networks to enroll, enroll people into networks and sometimes does block recruitment by involving whole organisations, often without people knowing, as it were, into, into, into organisations, into, into campaigns. And we sort of have two examples, an example of each, which is what the, the last part of the book is, uh, uh, is about. Um, and I guess what, what we, 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 we're interested in at this point is, is looking at the ways in which, which goes back to the, the first part I was talking about, looking at the ways in which the organisations we were looking at, at least, um, certainly in around fair trade campaigning, uh, we're increasingly not focusing on consumer as the, as the subject position, if you like, they were trying to enrol people in. They were telling us, and it looked like they were, in fact, uh, increasingly keyed to the, sort of the other thicker identities, if you like, that people um, carry around with themselves and perform in everyday life, and sort of trying to kind of, um, sort of enrol people via those identities into their campaigns. So the, the first example is a case study of <coughs> tradecraft networks around um, uh, Bristol. Tradecraft, as you may or may not know, is one of the most important fair trade organisations and businesses in, in, in the country. Um, has very active uh, networks in, 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 in Bristol. So we're looking at uh, fair trade, uh, uh, sort of tradecraft networks in North Somerset and South Bristol and uh, North Bristol and South Gloucestershire. Um, lots and lots of things to, to, to say. Fair, uh, tra tradecraft is, is interesting because it's a membership organisation, so it has about 5,000 sort of active uh, members. So the organisational structure of these sorts of campaigns uh, is interesting because you have different sorts of organisations. Tradecraft has real live members in it, um, 
but lots of these campaigning networks don't have real, real uh, members. The Ethical Consumption Research Association, who the people who produce the Ethical Consumer magazine, for example, they're just a kind of a think tank, essentially. Interesting, smart people based in Manchester. Um, but they, 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 don't, they, can't, they don't have members. They're very closely connected to the co-op, which, of course, does have large numbers of members. The Clean Clothes campaign, which is a sort of trade union-led campaign around a, a sweatshop labour, has technically millions of members enrolled into its campaigns, but actually the campaign in practice consists of about three people in an office. The millions of members come via the affiliation of the trade unions. So you have different organisational structures in these, in different sorts of campaigns. We were looking at, in this case, study at Tradecraft, precisely because Tradecraft has this kind of real presence in particular social networks. Tradecraft comes out of particular church faith-based networks and the examples we were looking at was how particular um, uh, members of Tradecraft, so-called fair traders, uh, used their position in church net networks in particular to try and enrol their, their friends and fellow churchgoers in particular into fair trade uh, campaigns. And interestingly, one of, the, one of the interesting things which we didn't really kind of anticipate, uh, because I think actually there's a strong assumption that sort of lots of fair trading stuff is naturally to do with churchy type people, that one of the things that the fair, trader, fair traders uh, talked about when they talked about their fair trade activism in church uh, was how difficult it was actually that they actually t tended to sort of have to um, play down the, the faith aspects of their own commitments and of fair trade uh, uh, commitments more generally because that tended to turn people off not least other, other churchgoers so, so there's particular ways in which faith issues and other, other commitments were um, uh, uh, negotiated by, by fair traders as they enrolled people from their social networks into these campaigns. And from the other direction, as it were, Tradecraft's own strategy of how to roll out their campaigns recognises a whole series of different sorts of things that people can do. They can kind of give some money or they can buy some things or they can become much more actively involved by going on runs of various sorts. Um, but Tradecraft is one example of an organisation which has a very kind of smart understanding of what they call the energies and commitments that ordinary people have which they're not trying to transform dramatically, they're not trying to substitute, they're certainly not really addressing people as consumers primarily, not in these networks. What they're trying to do is recognise what commitments and energies people have and sort of re-articulate them a little bit, sort of giving them a twist by connecting them to other sorts of uh, practices. And that was a sort of a style of uh, campaign strategy that we, th we thought was sort of um, exemplary of things going on in other, other sorts of fields. The, the point being that this is a style of campaigning at this level at least through social networks, through church groups and, and beyond in, into local communities doesn't really seem to revolve around the figure of the consumer very much at all. Of course at some point the, the logic is, is to get people to buy things uh, but that's not the kind of the key, the key kind of uh, uh, set of understandings of agency and uh, subjectivity involved. So people involved in, uh, involved in those networks as Christians or as uh, parents or as trade unionists or socialists or whatever particular thicker identities they have. The second kind of example of this style, if you like, of kind of non-consumer focused collective campaigning around fair trade that we looked at, um, and this is my last I I example, um, was, is, is various campaigns around sort of becoming a fair trade something. Fair trade, I'm sure that the University of Oxford probably isn't yet a fair trade university, might be, I don't know. The first fair, fair trade university is Oxford Brooks. Uh, the Fair Trade Foundation uh, certifies all sorts of different um, uh, 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 bodies. I don't know why I'm sure that Oxford isn't. Um, well, it just seems actually too large and disparate. I'm sure it's probably Fair Trade Colleges. I shouldn't be rude. Um, 
uh, the Fair Trade Foundation uh, certifies all sorts of different organisations these days as fair trade, fair trade schools, fair trade universities, fair trade towns, uh, fair trade churches. Um, fair trade town movement starts in the early 2000s and Bristol happened to be entirely accidentally, we didn't know anything about this when we started, it was the first big kind of metropolitan sized borough, uh, met metropolitan sized authority to uh, uh, go through the process of being certified as a fair trade city. Uh, at the beginning of, so this was a year-long campaign starting in 2004 through to 2005, which coincided with our project. We accidentally ended up sort of sponsoring the launch of Bristol's Fair Trade City campaign. Um, uh, we, we kind of get money on one of these projects to do lots of end-of-project user group events, and we kind of spent all the money at the beginning, beginning by sponsoring their, their launch. I'm not sure if that's what we were supposed to do it with. This is a picture of the, the day that Bristol successfully was certified as a Fair Trade uh, a, a city with a visitor from a Dominican uh, uh, Republic um, plantation, a banana plantation, and various local dig dignitaries. The background is standing in front, of course, of the SAS Group, Great Britain, one of Bristol's great tourist attractions. So we kind of tracked the, the, this year-long campaign, and I think we'd make a claim, claim that we did an ethnography of it, primarily because one of the researchers, Alice, is a proper trained <coughs> anthropologist, and she was act actively involved in this campaign. That's why she was one of the reasons she was involved in it, uh, from the inside, tracking the decision-making processes. We're also living in Bristol. I'm not sure if that counts as being ethnographic, but we kind of sort of claim it does. And there were two sort of things we, were, we kind of ended up thinking were interesting about, about this. Um, well, actually, there's more than two things. One of the more than two things is, is that this sense of a style of campaigning which is increasingly interested in trying to change, if you like, kind of collective infrastructures or background contexts of consumption, not just sort of saying you buy more or less responsibly, but trying to kind of change the, the context in which that, those sorts of choices and decisions are, are made. Um, so one aspect of the, the fair trade campaign in Bristol which was, it was interesting was the way in which a whole set of kind of quite, potentially quite problematic issues had to be negotiated with a small p political uh, uh, small p political, politically. They, these had to be negotiated politi politically. How do you make a, 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 a city like Bristol kind of adopt and, and uh, formally kind of uh, sign up to fair trade principles given all sorts of other local, local issues? So um, the fair trade city campaign, actually, to cut a long story short, is part of an ongoing kind of set of uh, ca campaigns through which Bristol is, is essentially kind of rebranding itself as a certain sort of city engaging it, it, it failed to bid for a it failed to win European capital of culture before this it's since gone through a very public um, reckoning with its its slave history all sorts of other issues so it's part of a kind of a, 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 a broader sort of urban politics of, of of redevelopment going on in the city but it specifically revolved the fair trade city campaign kind of exposed a set of issues about a set of interesting issues not least these days about fairness and the, of just what fairness meant Essentially, kind of the local authority in particular, and the, <coughs> the key people in the local authority, um, was kind of presented with this problem of how to sort of get local actors to sign up to this, this programme, which is also all, of, all, of, all about, of course, responsibilities for faraway places. So they kind of came up with all sorts of interesting kind of ways of saying that fair trade, for signing up to fair trade would also uh, uh, be ways of being involved in fair deals for local farmers in Bristol's kind of rural hinterland for different sorts of local communities around, uh, around the, the city. Uh, so different ways of, kind of negotiating, kind of if you like, the local and global sort of um, tension, which exists classically in lots of literature. It's, it's a tension which people write about in terms of organic food issues and fair trade issues, a, a close, distant sort of story. Well, this was going on internally in, in Bristol. And one of the interesting things was about how fairness turned out to be quite a flexible way in, in which these tensions were negotiated. 
The second point was just the, the sense that the key actors in this campaign, the key agents, were a series of, uh, uh, weren't consumers, they were a series of, of officials in local authority departments, particularly procurement, um, local procurement officers, interestingly, um, uh, 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 or key actors in other private or public bodies around, around the, the, the city. And that's interesting, the procurement example being the most interesting example, precisely because what these people were, were doing was making sure that fair trade tea or coffee was what you could get in the, in the canteen of the local, local council offices. Um, and we, th we sort of think this is interesting. My favourite example of this is the zoo. If any of you are familiar with, <laughs> no reason why you should be, Bristol has a zoo, it's a very famous um, zoo. Uh, if you, if you, these days, if you go to Bristol Zoo and you want a cup of tea or coffee, which, is, which you will, um, particularly if, uh, speaking ethnographically, if you go there as a parent of a young child, you have to. Um, you want a cup of tea, you have to stop. You, know, you have to stop and have a cup, cup, cup of tea. Uh, you'll be drinking fair trade to your, to your coffee. You have no choice. Um, that's just a simple example. I kind of picked this up the other day. Fair, First Great Western is the, it's the same on First Great Western these days. All their tea and coffee is fair trade. Um, a, a kind of a simple point again, but it's, a, it's an example of the way in which kind of choosing fair trade in this context is, has simply, um, is no longer the issue. If you wanted a cup of, cup of tea in Bristol Zoo, you, you've become a fair trade and an ethical consumer. Yeah? So this is just an example which we thought was going on more broadly around the fair trade consumption campaign. And you can think of kind of different versions of the same sort of thing around other types of uh, um, kind of urban experiments, transition towns and uh, slow, slow, food, uh, slow cities. Uh, campaigns might be doing similar sorts of things, essentially kind of um, uh, bracketing a whole series of forms of choice by actually just changing systems of provision or changing supply systems. The other thing that the Fair Trade City campaign did was use the, the public spaces of the city as a way of projecting fair trade narratives. So in both of those senses, we, we tell a story about how the Fair Trade City campaign is, is the archetypal example of a, of a form of ethical consumption campaigning in which consumers have almost disappeared in a certain sense. People are being asked to and, in a sense, are being made to be ethical uh, consumers without even knowing it in certain sorts of ways, which we just think at the very least is quite fun and might raise certain sorts of issues. So I'll just kind of briefly, I won't run through all those points, <laughs> that was my conclusion. I'll just sort of kind of give you a kind of a, a simple couple of, a couple of headlines. The first, the first no, the most obvious finding of our, of, our, of our project is that responsibility and acting responsibility around issues of consumption is certainly rather complex. More importantly, it's, largely, it's a highly contested set of issues. And as a bracket to that, we think it's worth taking seriously what ordinary people think and how they talk about responsibility and related issues. Secondly, we kind of have these three ways in which the most creative forms of ethical consumption campaigning seem to be pushing consumers, as it were, aside by addressing ordinary people in terms of dilemmas of what they could do, what they should do, <coughs> by making it possible for people to do certain sort of things, sometimes as consumers, but often as not. Um, but specifically by focusing on people's, the thick identities, as it were, that people have as parents, as uh, 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 certain sorts of professionals, as Christians or trade unionists or, or, or whatever. Secondly, in the sense that uh, increasingly en the, the most interesting and entertaining forms of campaigning in this, this world seem to be focused on changing kind of background infrastructures of consumption. And thirdly, just a sense that the key actors in, certainly, the, I mean, almost by definition, because this is what we're looking at, but the key actors 
in ethical consumption campaigns were organisations, networks of campaigns, um, social movements, broadly speaking, think tanks, NGOs, uh, who, were, who were the organisations who, who are producing discourses of consumer responsibility, enabling people to act sometimes as consumers, but very often not as consumers, but as other sorts of uh, subjectivities. And so my very final point would, would be, there's no reason to think that the politics of consumption, or indeed the ethics and politics of consumption, necessarily has to be played out through the agency of the consumer. And you might actually ask a question when you, when you find those two attached to each other, consumption politics and consumer agency, of how they've been brought together, because it might be rather peculiar and odd that they often do. Anyway, there's lots of other things we did in our project. <laughs> but, um, Um, we'll now have a, uh, a short uh, commentary by um, Paul Burke, who is a senior partner at Econa. Uh, he's been a consultant in-house at Royal Sun and Alliance uh, externally for 15 years. He ex has extensive knowledge of the financial services sector and how businesses operate and the challenges they face. His corporate responsibility expertise is complemented by earlier experiences in human resources and change management, corporate planning and business strategy. Uh, he understands and acts as an advocate for the benefits of implementing a cohesive corporate responsibility strategy. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you. Um, it was my great pleasure to be here today. Um, some, some years back, when I was uh, an undergraduate and postgraduate at Oxford, uh, studying history and um, uh, then international relations, I never once guessed when I was struggling with uh, why were fish weirs in Magna, mentioned in Magna Carta, what was the importance of Marian Words and Alan Stein, the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, that I would be standing in the room below the History Faculty Library talking about ethical uh, consumerism. Um, that's part of the way the world has developed over the last so many years. Um, I've been involved in this area for about 11 years now, and I've seen a, a huge change in, in this whole issue around consumption and uh, the role of the, the consumer in influencing organisations. It was very uh, interesting in, in, in many of the, the, the areas that, that, that Clive mentioned because it corresponds to a lot of the things that I've seen and, and we see uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, I think the, the point about the narrative and actions is absolutely right. Um, I think that in the early 2000s particularly, many of the NGOs that were campaigning in this area were just desperate for airtime and they ran um, some very slick and clever campaigns, so much so that they actually wrong-footed a lot of the uh, corporates. Um, they were able to um, draw attention to the deficiencies within corporates, and uh, you, know, you got to that point where who would you rather listen to, who would you rather trust, the nice, casually-dressed guy from the NGO or the corporate suit. And interestingly, one of the things that we find now, one of the real difficulties that we find, is when we try to engage uh, with NGOs on behalf of, of large multinational companies, you know, you have <coughs> some of the largest companies in the world, some of the largest companies in the UK, uh, NGOs are absolutely inundated with requests to go and talk to corporates. So whereas, you know, you know they become almost like supermodels, you know, they don't get out of bed for anything less than a 50,000, 100,000 pound donation. Some years back, they are absolutely desperate just to go in and, you know, have a nice, pleasant chat. So that, I think that's absolutely right. 
Um, touched on the, the, the sort of ethical uh, consumer work that, that my former colleagues at the co-op used to do, because I used to work at the co-op, so I knew all about their ethical consumer index. I was uh, there not long after that started, uh, and we'll <coughs> talk a bit about ethical brands in a moment. Well, um, it, it's, I think it's, it's helpful if you use uh, the co-op's ethical consumer survey as a benchmark. In 1999, when it first started, they quoted an ethical uh, consumer market in the UK of about 13.5 billion. They reckon it's increased to about 36 billion by 2008-2009. The largest increase, proportionately, uh, was uh, in eco-travel and transport. It was a tenfold increase from about 175 million to 1.7 billion. Green home expenditure has gone from 1.4 to seven and uh, ethical finance, including SRI, has gone from five billion to about 14.3 billion. The point is though that that still represents a very, very small proportion of total consumer expenditure. And certainly on the ethical finance side, depending on how you define uh, socially responsible investments, green investments, you're probably talking somewhere around maybe 1%, maybe slightly more of funds under management. Uh, so there's still a long way to go. Um, I think around this whole issue of, of, of the consumer owning the issue, uh, I think that, that, that is really fascinating. Uh, we undertook some, some research a few years back around the issue of uh, uh, social responsible investment. And we went out and we did lots of focus groups and qualitative interviews. And we, used a guy who's a very eminent psychologist to, uh, to, to oversee that work. And we went out and asked people, you know, here's this idea of social responsible investment. Do you think it's a good idea that your money should be invested <coughs> in those areas uh, that, that, that deliver positive social or environmental impact? Answer yes. You know, who wouldn't say that? Yeah. Hands up anyone who thinks it shouldn't, you know, we, we should charge court low wages, pollute the planet. Anyone? Anyone? No, no, no. Okay, would you like to just sign this form and invest your savings into this? You know, you'll probably say yes, we will. Um, you should always watch out about audiences. But, but seriously, there is, a, there is a disconnect between ownership, uh, uh, between what people say and what people do. And that's also been very starkly brought home to us with other work we did, again around focus groups. Focus groups are a dangerous thing. Um, and we wanted to investigate uh, consumers' views of um, of the clothing market, essentially sweatshops. So we went out and we did a series of focus groups for a very large high street retailer, and um, fascinating. Um, we, we talked about you know should, you, should we uh, should, should the uh, retailer uh, pay its suppliers you know more, pay, make sure to ensure that that money was then passed down the supply chain and the people who produced their goods were given a, a paid a living wage, um, and men, males were actually more positive and said, yes, they should, yes, definitely. When we, did, when we, when we repeated the question with uh, a number of focus groups with, um, with women, um, all sorts of, of, of interesting justifications of why it was perfectly acceptable um, not, to, not to pay uh, higher wages. You know, well, I like that blouse. You know, I couldn't afford to, you know, to find you know, two or three tops for the same price. And when I was young, I had to go out and work. So really, they should be the same. And, and it's that sort of um, disconnect between, I can see there's a problem, but how, is, how are my personal actions and activities 
going to respond to that to address that. Um, one area where I do think it's interesting again is this about this, this thing about ethical consumption and what the people know about ethical consumption. I'm not 100% sure that the level of knowledge is that great. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I think uh, that companies um, have, um, I would say, told lies, but they've created this, this sense of ethical brands. And I think if you dig uh, a bit beneath the surface, you'll find uh, some surprising things. Um, many people here will remember how a few years back a certain large, a very large oil company, um, begins in B and ends in P, rechristened uh, um, itself as Beyond Petroleum. Yeah, yeah. And lots of people uh, contrasted BP's wonderful record and, and Lord Brown of Maddingly was seen as um, uh, the, the leader of a new wave of businessmen who were going to transform the economy um, by positioning uh, BP as, as this, uh, this catalyst for a change in, in the use of carbon-based fuels. Uh, BP now is seen in a slightly different way. Um, the point is that organisations, in response to the uh, rising interest from NGOs and others, have tr had to um, change their message, change their positioning, change their branding, but actually how much how deep does it go beneath the surface? Um, we undertook some uh, research very recently for um, Argos and um, for the Eden Project. Anyone, anyone been to the Eden Project? Yeah? Good. good, good. Um, and it was all around how uh, households uh, might respond to the challenges posed by um, climate change. 21st Century Living Project, um, you can find the digest of the results, so I wouldn't propose to go through them, but there were some quite interesting conclusions from that. Um, again, I, I don't, wouldn't propose to go through every single one, but it, it was perfectly uh, clear from that that people were much more comfortable tapping issues to do with energy so reduce their energy consumption, um, followed by waste. Water was a bit, mm, not sure, can't really see the connection. Uh, and, and in terms of travel, they weren't interested at all. Um, the other thing that came out of that was that people were quite keen, or not, not just quite keen, but extremely keen, not to have generic information about ethical products or environmentally friendly products. They wanted tailored advice that related to their specific situation. It had to be tailored. Um, but in uh, response to that, if it was tailored, they were prepared to invest their own money. We gave um, 100 households who participated in the survey of £500 to spend as they wished on environmental uh, improvements. And uh, over, um, over 60, 60, yeah, 61, over 60% um, actually spent more than that, so they, they spent some of their own money on a one pound for one pound basis. So we gave them 500, they spent another 500 of their own money. Now that raises an interesting question for companies and for government and the extent to it, although given the present financial climate, I'm not sure the government's going to be putting too much money in this area, 
Um, but it raises an interesting question in terms of corporate uh, companies and their marketing. So can they use uh, this desire to improve environmental performance within the household um, by clever uh, pricing and offers uh, to entice people in? So it's not giving things away. It's actually saying, well, you know, you come along to us, we'll try and we'll do as good a deal as possible on uh, environmental improvements. The other thing, which I've just, just, just done on that, um, there was, it wasn't quite an inverse correlation, but there was no correlation at all between those who said uh, they were extremely concerned about environmental issues and those who actually made any changes as a result. So, you know, we all talk a good game. Um, we all say that we are prepared to, um, you know, reduce our carbon footprints, behave ethically, whatever, but in terms of actual change, those who um, talked loudest didn't necessarily walk the longest. Okay. I just wanted to say a couple of other things. Um, there was some work done um, about two or three years ago by WWF. And WWF, well, Wildlife Fund, have been incredibly successful at raising a whole host of issues around the environmental uh, changes, climate change, uh, and other uh, issues confronting uh, the world today. And what they, what they highlighted was that many environmental campaigns have focused on a sort of marketing-led approach. So you, you almost sort of you, you treat this as a way in which to engage the customer in the same way as you would if you were marketing a product. And their research showed that whilst at a sort of piecemeal level for a specific project, pro, um, product, so for example, um, Toyota Prius has been a success. But has the sales of, of, of the Toyota Prius actually had a dramatic impact on the behaviour of those who bought the Prius? Or does it actually work in a slightly different way? So they say, I bought the Prius, I've done my bit, therefore I can go off and do whatever else I want. So you know, if I'm Brad Pitt, I can go and fly off with Angelina. Um, so wherever it is in the world, I've got a Prius to offset my carbon footprint through the flight. What they, what they said was that the, the real um, way to change behaviour is to do what um, successful political parties do. And that is to actually align the message with the core beliefs and, and values. So to get away from sort of, you know, we'll do this little bit, um, we'll concentrate on this area here, actually talk the talk. Now, I was, I was, I, when I was reading this through the day, I thought, that's interesting, isn't it? And I, I thought back, because I'm a historian, I thought back to um, uh, the early 1980s and Mrs Thatcher. She was dim and distant past to many people, but some of us have uh, still bear the scars. Um, and if you think back to that time, the one thing that even opponents of Margaret Thatcher said was, I don't like her, but I know where she stands. And I think one of the problems around this whole sort of issue of, of ethical consumption and sustainability is the failure to follow through and to be explicit about what ethical consumption and sustainability actually means. It's not about these incremental changes, it's about actually acknowledging that resources are <coughs> finite, um, that resources um, uh, can't be used in the same way as we've used them for the last God knows how many years, and consequently we have to have a fundamental change in behaviour. So, I'll, I'll, I'll round up. Um, just, just one last thought. Um, Winston Churchill, 
another great uh, politician, um, leader, said, it is no use saying we are doing our best. We have got to succeed in doing what is necessary. And I think, given the environmental problems, particularly with this, this plant spacing, we've got to do uh, what is necessary. Thank you.